Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we have Chris Newman on, who is a professor of space law. Hi, Chris. Hello there. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? Yes, not too bad. Good. So do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do, Chris? Okay, yeah. Um, I am an academic, first and foremost. I'm a professor at an English university, Northumbria, in Newcastle. Um, so that means I'm an active member of the law department there. I, you know, I teach law and the law that I specialize in is the law of outer space, the law regulating human activity beyond the, you know, the von Karman line and up into outer space, you know, regulation of satellites, regulation of, um, launches into space, human activity, going beyond that into the moon. And yeah, it's, it's an emerging area of law, but it is a really exciting and vibrant one. And one that actually has really increased in significance over the last 10, 15 years. So where did this come from? Was it a love of law first or a love of space first? That's a really interesting question because the space has, the love of space has always been there ever since I've been a little, but you know, before I can remember remembering, I've always <laughs> loved space. I mean, it's always been there. It's always been part of me. And um, I, I really tried to, to, to do space, but I just didn't have the, I didn't have the maths ac- acumen and the engineering acumen. Uh, I, it turned out that my skills were writing and verbal communication and, you know, and that type of thing. And, and so I, I, despite wanting to get in the space industry, I, I couldn't see a way in. And um, I had one or two career changes, and then I found myself becoming a legal academic. And a friend of mine said to me, um, he said, well, what are you going to specialize in? And I, I, I'd looked at him and I'd admired him because he was very focused and driven on the area of law that he was doing. He, was, uh, he, he specializes in law and sexuality and queer theory. And I said to him, I said, well, I said, I want to be like you. I want to be as, as focused and as driven as you are. And he said to me, yeah, but don't forget, he said, the law I study isn't what I do. It's who I am. Mm. And that really impacted me. And I thought, okay, what's my identity? What am I talking about here? And, you know, I'd seen colleagues who pursued conventional law careers, criminal law, constitutional law, commercial law. And I thought, well, what, what, what am I? And I thought, it's space. That's what I really love doing. And so I thought, well, there might be, there may be something in law and tech or something like that. And then I found this small area of space law. I mean, it, it, when I started looking at it, it was nowhere near the size that it was now. It was a few international lawyers, you know, and it was, it was, it was quite a, a, a niche group. Now it's real mainstream. You know, the, it, it's people are discussing space law in a way that they haven't ever before really. So kind of that's going to, I've gone a long way around answering your question, but <laughs> why, why space and why law? The, the answer is kind of the space was always there. The law was the day job and it was just a question of combining the two. It's such a, it must be an absolute minefield to begin to, to, to sort of break down a, a case in space. You know, how do you even begin to sort of, who decides what happens in space? Who is in charge of the law up there? So in terms of actually the law itself, it, it's what I call a pyramid. You start right at the top and the top of the pyramid is international space law. That's treaties agreed by nations and those nations agree to behave in a certain way. 
Now, when we're talking about that, we're talking about very broad principles. We're not talking about, you know, the operating system of space. We're talking about a, a, a lot higher level. These are broad principles, the principle of peaceful purpose, the principle that they won't take nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction into our space, the principles that states are responsible for their own national space activity. So when we're talking about international space, we're talking about very, very broad principles. And it's then given to the states to interpret how these are, how these are enacted, how these are operationalized. But there's another level as well. There's what I call the, 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 the lower basement level of, of things that happen, you know, people doing stuff. So a lot of things and a lot of the, a lot of the way that law is shaped, especially in outer space, especially with it being so international, is by just companies and nations just doing stuff. The kind of the, the way I, I, I view it and the way I sort of explain it is imagine a field, big farmer's field, and it's, it's got grass up to your knees. And you walk across the field and somebody else sees you and go, all right, that's the way to go. And they follow you and they walk across and somebody else sees you and walks across. Before too long, the grass gets trodden down, doesn't it? And a path becomes clear. Mm-hmm. That's how space law emerges. Okay. Okay. People behave in a certain way. So you've got the high level treaties on one hand, you've got states and state law behaving in another way, and then you've got people just doing things and creating these paths. And that's how space law emerges. So you talk about cases, it's not really cases, there hasn't actually been many cases in law, much more about setting down ways of behaving. Okay. And how did you sort of first get into this world of space law? So you mentioned you were doing law previously, but where was your first um, sort of experience within space law? Um, So my first, my very first bit of space was uh, when I did a a dissertation for my undergraduate degree back in 1995 on um, space as a manifestation of foreign policy. And it was very sort of, I look back at it now, very naive, but you know, it was, it was, the, it was the first sort of dawnings of, of, of what I did. Mm. Then I became, um, then I, I took a bit of a left turn actually, because I left, I left university. I'd got a history degree, history and politics, and I joined the police and oh, wow. became a detective. And during that, during, during my sort of my time in the police, I, I encountered what we call counter proliferation. So Bear in mind, the time I'm talking about is 1998. The Berlin Wall had just come down and we were in the stage where a lot of black market weapons had started to, to, to come from, from uh, Soviet forces, former, you know, Soviet bloc forces. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that was happening was there was this concern about prolifer- proliferation of weapons and rocket launches and things like that falling in the hands of terrorist groups. And I became involved in, in sort of that world. And it was there that I first encountered a thing called the, the missile uh, control regime. And then I encountered ITAR, the um, International Traffic of Arms Regulations. And then I encountered the Outer Space Treaty. So actually through that world, the arms control world was my first true exposure to space. And that was sort of stayed with me. I would, I would have been about 23, 24 at the time. And so that kind of stayed with me as I left the police and I became a solicitor uh, I was a solicitor in private practice for three years. Didn't really enjoy it. It wasn't for me. Um, and then I became an academic in 2004. And that's when I got my chance to really start exploring this. A couple of years later, I set up the space law module, started doing research into space law, published articles and developed an expertise that uh, the kind of I've got now. 
So what was your process uh, actually becoming a lawyer? Obviously, did you have to go back to university, study an undergrad, master's or something? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, so I did my, my first undergraduate degree at Sussex University in 92, 95. Um, then left Sussex, became a policeman, uh, was, was in the police for five years, six years, and then left the police. Then I went to Northumbria, actually, where I'm teaching now. And I did what they call the post, or it was at the time, the postgraduate diploma in law. And that is, if you like, the edited highlights of a law degree. And it gives you qualifying law degree status. So I had my undergraduate degree topped up with the with a GDL, PGDL at the time. Then I did a legal practice course, which was another year. So the, the, the graduate diploma was, was a year. The legal practice course was another year. And then I was ready to, then I was ready to go into private practice. And I applied for training contracts. And this will be a story familiar to anybody who's, you know, applied for a law job, um, hundreds of rejections. And I just happened to catch a firm on a lucky day and I, I got a training contract. So worked as worked, yeah, worked there for a couple of years. Wasn't for me. I mean, it, it, was, it was fairly obvious from an early stage that it wasn't, that, that I wasn't enjoying it and it wasn't for me. And then, um, yeah, then left a, left a training contract and took up a post in academia. Wow. And how is balancing academia and the practice of um, law at the same time? Well, it, it's, I mean, I'm very fortunate. The university I work, we, we've got a, a wonderful blend of academic and practitioner. I no longer practice. I'm, I'm done with that. I'm much more, I'm an academic. But what I do is I go and, you know, I, I work with firms in the space industry. So I'm much more advising on policy and regulatory processes rather than actually the law itself. There's the, with space, there's, there's, a, there's three areas to think of. So we think of the law, that's, that's the actual, you know, commands backed by a sanction, but that's actually a very small part of how we run space. The bigger bit is the governance aspect. So the regulation, what the regulator says that you can do. Uh, and then there's the policy side of it as well, the big picture stuff. What are we going to do in space? How long, you know, what are we going to do in five, 10, 20 years time? And so I advise on, on, on all three elements of that, but I don't give out legal advice as such. My advice is how to navigate the governance structure. So I see colleagues at, I see, I see colleagues at university and they, they, they're, they're practicing solicitors or practicing barristers and they're also academics and they manage to balance it out because we've got quite a vibrant um, law clinic at the at the university we're, we're very very lucky in uh, Northumbria we've got a you know award-winning law clinic that is almost like a firm itself so that's how it that's how it would be balanced I'm fortunate in the sense that I'm purely allowed to concentrate on my on my research but my research is very applied to the space industry so we've kind of alluded to the fact that this is a growing industry and space law is very much in its infancy. Mm-hmm. But with, uh, you know, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos pushing to go and colonize planets and uh, head out towards Mars, this must be a really exciting time within space law to start laying down the groundworks for, you know, what happens in on Mars if something goes wrong. Honestly, you've hit the nail on the head. It is such a fascinating time. I mean, it was great when I was starting because when I was starting, it was, you know, the early 2000s. But there was, you know, a, a steady stream of, of things going into it. We still had the space shuttle and that was going up and the ISS was beginning to come into shape. So it was great. It was, you know, it was a nice time. But there wasn't the commercial activity and there wasn't the interest that we're seeing now. 
people talk about a second space race. I don't really buy into that narrative. But what I do think is space interest amongst everybody has had a real renaissance. We're rediscovered. We, we lost the magic of space for a while. But I think, I think we've got it back. And we've got the wow factor back. So you're absolutely right. At the minute, there's so many interesting dimensions to space activity. You talked about Elon Musk, obviously, the, you know, probably the highest profile of the, of the space barons. The, the, there was a book called The Space Barons that talked about him and Jeff Bezos and, and, and the likes. I like that um, space baron. That's a great, yeah, that great was it. phrase. It's the, title, it's the actual title of the book, um, The Space Barons. It's a really interesting book about how space activity has changed, even over, like, as I said, the last 10 years. But Musk, is, it's, it's fascinating because when we think about early space activity, who are the people that come to mind? It was you know John Glenn, it was Neil Armstrong, it was Yuri Gagarin. Mm. Now, name me three astronauts. You probably yeah. can't. Yeah, it'd be hard. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got Tim Peake, right? And and, and that's, that's about what it, I can name. Right? Yeah. But you can name me Jeff Bezos. You can name me Elon Musk. You can name me Richard Branson. You can name me all of these entrepreneurs. So that's the direction that space activity is kind of taking. Mm. It's becoming very, very commercialized. And we're looking to use space rather than, or as well as exploring. I think that's where it gets so interesting. Because, yes, we're talking about the colonization of Mars. And, and, and I use the word colonization advisedly because actually humans ain't particularly good at colonizing. We, we only have to look at human history to see what a, what a mess we tend to make of places that we colonize. So I think that's a useful warning to keep in our mind. But then closer to Earth, what we're doing with the orbits of the Earth, you know, the, there is, there's, a lot, um, there's a lot of stuff up there. And we're going to have to start thinking about how we manage it and how we direct it. That's actually something that um, we've spoken to someone previously on the podcast about is the pollution that we are putting into space. And eventually you won't be able to get through the layer that we create up there. Is there, what, what is happening about that? Well, this is one of the things, I mean, the trouble with a lot of space activity is it, it's, I told you about the field, didn't I? The, you know, yep. the, the activity that, that happened and people continue to do that. And I think that's what we've got at the minute. We've got the old way of doing business. And unfortunately, because you've got companies like Starlink putting so many more satellites up there that were than, than were before. I mean, I think if we'd have been having this discussion in 2018, I'd have said to you there are about 17, 1800 operational satellites. Right now, there are probably about 2,300, 2,400. Wow. That's a huge increase. It's a, you mm. know, it's a massive increase in the, in the operation orbital population. Now, Starlink have got a, a license for, for tens of thousands of these things. And even if the failure, even assuming a failure rate of 5%, 5% of, you know, 30,000 is still a lot of satellites going wrong. Mm. So we've got a problem because states don't want to limit their economic activity. They don't want to limit the amount of money that they can make from space. Similarly, they don't want to hand over sovereignty to somebody else. They don't want to hand over their ability to put things into space to an international body. But on the other hand, something has to be done. There has to be this coordination. Otherwise, space is going to get messier and messier, and there's going to be an accident, and it's going to be expensive. Is there any sort of, uh, I guess... In the US, there was a movement to create the Space Force. So that's the militarization of space. Is there, are there a lot of pushback towards these things? And is there maybe a second space race? So when we're talking about militarization of space, this is something that, again, it, it's presented as a, as a growing threat. But don't forget, 
You know, the, the, the early rockets were nuclear missiles. They just took the nuclear missile off the top and they put a, a satellite or a human on, on, on top of that. <laughs> you look at all of the early astronauts, they were all test pilots. They were all former military. Um, the military is and always has been in space. And there is, you know, there's no real... There, there's no real way of getting around that. So we talk about the militarization of space. It's there. It's happened. It's, it's mm. done. It's a done deal. Space is is more of an enabler for the military. The, you know, the, the thought of, of military battles in space, it's quite fanciful and it, it appeals to the science fiction body. But actually, <laughs> space is much more useful than that because space is... is able to coordinate terrestrial battles and it's always about terrestrial battles it's rarely about will there will there be conflict about space it will always be back on earth and that's the mm. that's the thing so space what space forces again that it hasn't magically created all of these military space people they were always there they were just working for the air force and it was just a, so so what we've had is a is a sort of a a, a rebadging reorganization but i think it's a, it's also an attitudinal and organizational shift as well so in terms of in terms of military activity in outer space there is military activity that uses outer space there is military activity that occurs in outer space and there is military activity that passes through space. So your cruise missiles, they, or, or your, your nuclear missiles, they, they sort of skirt into space, but they, they don't, they, you know, they're not in space. So in terms of pushback from Space Force, kind of, there's always going to be, but I think it's very difficult to disentangle the military from space, seeing as how they've been there from the start and they, they're not going anywhere. What is the uh, the life like as a professor and academic? Um, obviously, we've spoken about practice, uh, space law, but what's it like actually to be working in a university? It's I re- it's it's I mean it's obviously at the minute it's really challenging because of COVID yes. and because of the issues arising out of that. Trying to create a, a course that is that that feels real and that and that has interaction and vibrancy. It, it's got it's got its challenges, but I mean, no worse than anybody else's challenges in the world at the minute. You know, I'm 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 not spe- I'm not especially challenged because of it because everybody's at this time is a horrible time. Um, for me, the aim of the game is to make sure that people and that students really engage with the deep ideas here. I'm not doing a training course. I'm not doing a you know I'm I'm not doing a a knowledge dump. I, what I really want is for students to grapple with the deep issues of governance and try and, you know, come up with their own solutions and come up with their own ideas and really push the debate forward. I've been doing this for a number of years now, and it's their, you know, it's their turn to, to have a go and see if they can, they can wrestle with these wicked problems. So one of the things that I absolutely love is the teaching and the interaction with the students, because it's great to speak with people who are interested. It's great to speak with people who are, fresh who have fresh eyes who have fresh sort of awareness of the legal principles and have a desire to prove themselves so i really enjoy doing that i really love doing that um i also have responsibility for research so as a professor my job is to is to produce world-leading research and to you know develop research relationships across the world i'm very lucky i've got i've got colleagues across the globe i've got colleagues in australia in america in india in south africa and it's it's great to build up these network of connections that can help develop your understanding of, of of the subject. I mean, there's a tendency we all tend to get very siloed and you know very locked into our own way of thinking. And I think the best way to do that is to meet with colleagues from different jurisdictions who have different perspectives and different ideas. 
So my my what my work is is part liaison, part instructional, part um, you know coach and mentor. Uh, it's great. I really enjoy it, I have to say, because it allows me the freedom to, to, to develop my expertise and to develop in an area that I find genuinely fascinating and work with people who equally find it interesting. So with the future of space law and things like, you know, like we said, colonizing Mars and, and the moon, is it going to be a case of copying and pasting the law from Earth onto the moon? Or will we have to adapt and change things? And on top of that, you've already spoken about the, the pathway through the field. How much of that is dictated by what we already have? Great questions. And I think that is the real sort of problem we have. The, the humans tend to want to see these things replicated. Uh, you know, we see a number of occasions where well, isn't, isn't this just like the law of the sea or isn't this just like aviation law or isn't this like Antarctica? And I think one of the things that we really sort of need to accept is that space is different. Space is an environment that is entirely inimical to human life and that it requires an almost a, a, a different way of looking at things. So I think there is going to be anal and, you know, analogies that we can bring up there. There's going to be bits and pieces that we can use, um, you know, standards. There's nothing wrong with saying everybody should use the same docking hatch or everybody should use the same radio frequencies. Standards are a good thing because they, they, it means that everybody can kind of work together. So there's going to be certain things we can bring up there, but there's also going to be certain things that are going to be very, very different. You know, things don't happen in space, certainly in, in the orbit of the Earth, the way that you expect them to. Unless you've got sort of training in astrodynamics, the Earth's orbit's a funny and confusing place. So that the law needs to take account of that, that, that things don't happen in the way that they happen, you know, on Earth. You know, there's a lot more planning involved. There's a lot more um, forward thinking required. And I think what we'll see as expertise develops and, and, and as technology develops is we'll see the law playing catch up because it, it has to play catch up. The law, especially with technology, is always on a lag. It's always behind the curve because technology is moving so fast. That's a challenge because that means that human behavior can be you know, unregulated. But again, we go back to the, these basic principles that I talked about right at the start, these principles of space law, the peaceful purposes idea, the idea of no appropriation in outer space, the idea of cooperation, all of these that are at the heart of the international treaties. If all else fails, it's good to have them as the you know as the as the rocks as the anchors to which you can you can uh, hold the behavior if someone was to uh break these laws who holds them accountable again this goes back to what i was saying about the, about the principles and the the ideas on an international level enforcement is always an issue you know that if somebody breaks yeah. a treaty then there's pretty much not a lot you can do about it short of declaring war or economic sanctions. And if that country is richer than you, economic sanctions ain't going to work and they're probably going to defeat you in a war. So enforcement on an international level requires a lot more. It relies a lot more on persuasion and diplomacy and political pressure. But we've obviously a lot of these, um, Oh, a lot of the people involved in the space industry are companies not right. states so it then goes down to the national regulation and then the national regulators have the power to deny the license they have the power to right, you know okay. alter the conditions so that's how it works the, the the international law effectively 
international law says, states, you've got to look after your own people. Okay. And then the states will say, right, okay, we're going to license your space activity. And like driving, like driving a license, driving a car, sorry, if you've got, if you act not in accordance with the license, the state's going to punish you. So that's how it works. That's how, that's how it kind of meant to work. It flows down. It flows down from the international treaty to the state regulator. And the state regulator will then say, okay, if you're going to launch that rocket, you've got to do these certain things. We, will, we require these things to, to occur. You know, you've got to have good post-mission disposal plan. You've got to make sure that all your satellites deorbit after 25 years. So, you know, that's, and that's how it works. So enforcement is a bit of a crude term. It's much more like oversight and continuing supervision. So say in five, 10 years time, somebody's qualified, they're a space lawyer, there's loads of satellites going on, we're going back to the moon. What is an average day going to be like for a space lawyer? I think it's going to be really interesting first up. I think it's going to be one of understanding regulation and understanding how the regulatory frameworks of the particular jurisdiction they're in work. I think the bread and butter is going to be navigating your way through, you know, if we're in the UK, it's going to be either the Space Industry Act or it's going to be the Outer Space Act. I think understanding the, the next big thing, I think we've talked about space debris. I think the next big thing, thing is going to be the Scrabble for Spectrum, radio frequency spectrum. I think that's going to be a resource that's going to come under increasing stress and increasing strain as we, as we continue to develop. So I think understanding the way in which spectrum is regulated is going to be important and i think it's going to be very much a question of liaising on a national level and on an international level so i think it's going to be really interesting and i think it's going to be a fascinating um a fascinating time i i'm i'm sort of very envious of anybody getting into the game this this time because i think they've got they've got a long and and, and richly rewarding career ahead of them so what's an average day for you like at the moment? Obviously, I know COVID is going on, but what's it like to be a space lawyer in an academic field? One of the great things about this is that, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times before, but no two days are the same. <laughs> it may be that it may be that I'm, so for example, tomorrow, I'll tell you what my day is like tomorrow. <clears throat> I've got an online teaching session from nine till 10. So what I've done in preparation for that, I've recorded a couple of lectures, a couple of podcasts, put some reading up on the virtual learning environment, and I'm going to go and see what my students make of, of, the, of the discussion. Today, we're actually, tomorrow, we're actually doing uh, regulation of, of UK-based activities. Um, as soon as that's finished, I've got a couple of personal tutor meetings. So I'm going to t- meet and speak with the students and just see how everything's going out. I like to try and keep regular contact with my students because... It, the, the temptation to get lost in the online world is, is all too easy. Um, <laughs> then I've got a, a sort of research focused meeting where I'm going to discuss with my line manager and sort of their line manager ideas for how to take research space research forward and what a, what a modern research center looks like. So we're talking about the actual institutions and how we're going to liaise, how we're going to reach out on a, on a sort of institutional and a national and international level as well. Then uh, in the afternoon, I've got a couple of meetings with dissertation students. So students doing their masters who have who are pulling together um, 15, 20,000 word research projects on space. That's going to take you know quite a bit of time because we're at the structural stage now. So we'll look, the, the research has been done and we've got to build up the, the actual structure of the, of the dissertation as well. And then in the evening time, I've got a couple of hours where I'm going to do a little bit of reading, a little bit of research to keep me up to date. And... <laughs> 
that's how it's going. That's that's going to be the, that's going to be the day. So it's a great day because I'm going to be dealing with lots of interesting people. Got lots of ideas that are going to be flying around, uh, especially the, the 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 dissertation meeting, but also the uh, the online session where I get to talk to the students and we we get to sort of fling ideas about regulation around. Okay, and what would be some of the personality traits that you see in yourself and other um, academics around you uh, that really help you thrive? <sighs> That's a really interesting question, and I can tell you what I think helps me, if that's any use to you, and uh, because I think there there are so many different skills. I think I think a, a good um, a good university and a good academic department is like an orchestra; it has you know v- varieties of skills. I think the first thing my ability to um, my ability to research, my ability to be able to you know read and concentrate and focus. I think my ability to communicate helps. I think that makes a big difference. Uh, I also think that my ability to forge relationships and networks and connections, that's, that's really useful in the, in the work I do. Um, and the ability to sort of process that and give it as a, as a, as a tangible output. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a whole range of things. And I think each person will have different levels of that. Uh, about them in a, in a good department so there'll be some people who are really brilliantly analytical there'll be others who are great communicators there'll be others who are like myself probably useful at everything uh, but not exceptional in anything um, so I think I think that's kind of that's those kind of the broad skill sets that I would be looking at and on the other side of that what kind of personality traits do you think somebody who's going to go into practicing space law would help them thrive attention to detail um, a fierce work ethic. I think that's something that, again, we all have in the industry because I think it nat- it naturally sort of gets that. You know, we're doing things that we're really interested in, so we're going to be we're going to be driven towards it and we're going to be doing it. But I think I think having a fierce work ethic helps. All of the all of the very successful space lawyers I know are the most hardworking people I've ever seen. Um, I think attention to detail, I think uh, inquisitiveness as well, and curiosity. Those are the areas that I would really look for. Mm. And then this question is going to have two sides to it. So what are the biggest positives for you working in the academic side of the industry? And then what do you think are the biggest positives for somebody that's going to go into space law? I think for me, my independence, my ability to analyze the law and critique it and be able to say exactly what I see. You know, I'll be, I can, I can say that there is a weakness here. There is a weakness here, but there's good stuff there. So I think that's for, for me, that's what I value the most. I also value the ability to research pretty much what I like that, that, that if I have an idea and if something, I see a particular need for research in an area, I can say that needs looking at, that is important. That's an area that people are missing. Now, all of that might be not very commercially viable, but it doesn't matter because I can do it. So on the flip side, I think that um, somebody going into practice, the, the advantage will be that they'll be genuinely working hand in hand with space pioneers. And I think that's going to feel great. They're going to be doing something that is going to be putting things in space. That's got to be a great feeling. I think as well, knowing that they have the ability to affect change in that sense. So for me, it's the freedom and it's the it's the intellectual sort of uh, uh, ability to, to, to indulge my intellectual interests. And from the other side of it, I think it's the ability to actually physically make a difference. And what would be some of the less favorable or negative aspects? 
I think like with any, um, I'll, I'll speak generally because I think it's, I think it's, it's, we still have this, what I call the giggle factor about space. People, you know, if I mention what I do, you can guarantee people <laughs> look and go, well, what's that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's the giggle factor. You'd never do that to a commercial lawyer. You'd never do that to a criminal lawyer. You'd never do that to a constitutional lawyer, but I get it. And you know, so that there is, there is that. So there is the fact that we're doing pioneering also equals niche also equals odd. And you know, that that's, there's no getting away from that. So that's one of the things it can be, you know, it can open you up to, I, I don't want to say ridicule, but it can open you up to, to, to people looking slightly askance at you and, and thinking that's not real. They made that up. So that's the big thing that I've found in my career, trying to get over that, trying to communicate to, I was very, very lucky at my previous institution. I had a great boss who indulged me on this. I'm really lucky at the institution I've come to at Northumbria. They're such a forward thinking department and they, they embraced it. When I, when I told them what the idea was and how I thought it was going to go, they, they absolutely embraced it and they let me run with it. Um, because I always say space law, I think is like law in the internet was 25 years ago. Yeah, it, it's it's where where we there's that type of time. Like I think in 25 years, space law is going to be as unquestioned as law and tech is. So I think that's where it is. But we're not there yet. So there's a lot of sort of pioneering work that's gone on by great space lawyers before me, and hopefully I'm carrying the tradition on of trying to bring respectability and credibility to the field, because I do think there's, as I say, I call it the giggle factor. And how much of a demand is there for space lawyers currently? Again, it's it's increasing with almost every passing month. The when I started, there wasn't a, or there was there was maybe four or five space lawyers in the country, and we all knew each other, and we all know you know we all knew the the practitioners, and we all knew the academics. Now I think it's really rounding out, and there's a number of there's a number of students who I've taught, there's a number of students who are who've who've gone into practice, there's a number of solicitors there, there's a number of academics who who I've taught and who we've worked. So we can see it spiraling out and. I think it's going to, it's only going to increase. It's one area where I can say, I think there is definite signs of growth and I don't think that growth is going anywhere. And how, once you leave university and uh, have a career in space, or how does it sort of work? Are you mostly a consultant to larger companies? What does it sort of field look like? It can depend what you want to do. My, my, there's two basic, two basic ways to do it. Either become a solicitor and go through it as a, as a legal through the legal advice route and you know guide a firm through a firm will come to you with a legal problem usually a regulatory one to, to overcome and you do it that way or do a higher doc do a higher um, degree do a doctorate um, and then pursue it through the through the academic route that's the that's the route i've gone so if you you know the, the, the basically there's the two ways of doing it either in in practice as a solicitor or through academia and we like to talk a little bit about uh, salary expectations. So we go away and look for some data and we get average figures. So average pay for a lawyer in the UK for your first five years, you're looking at around 54,000. Mm. Um, but I'd imagine this is such a young industry with so much potential and the commercial side of it's going to grow year on year on year, as we said. So I'd imagine the salaries will, you can't really give a de- definitive sort of average yet, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right about the commercial law firm's salaries. I I would expect about 54,000 because I think actually my advice would be if you're interested in becoming a space lawyer, 
do the basics first. Get get all the basic good stuff, the contract law, you know, the, the regulatory law, get all of that under your belt. Mm. And that, which will involve going into practice and doing your various seats in the various parts of the firm. And then once you practiced, when, then you can set up your specialism. So very much for your, for your training contract, go and do, you know, do the basics and then emerge through that. So I would think actually probably the, the figure you give is, is about right, but blimey, they don't have to work your hard for it. Yeah. <laughs> and what would be something that's not in the job description, both within the law, um, the space law industry and for you as an academic? Um, the liaison between disciplines, I think, is, is a real thing that, that doesn't get mentioned enough and is, is something that, that I think is a crucial aspect of the job because scientists are scientists. They are not trained in the law. Lawyers are lawyers and they are not trained in science. And yet they're both going to have to live in the same world and it's gonna, they're going to be dealing with the problems that, that are going to, they're going to happen. And one leads so, the other. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And mistakes happen where one forgets about the other's expertise. So you can generally see that a, a project will, you know, you go on YouTube and you look at space projects that the, the YouTube is full of videos of really promising space projects that came to nothing because the business case wasn't solid. The regulatory case wasn't solid. And, you know, they, they, they underestimated that side of things. Similarly, a lawyer needs absolutely to understand that the space environment is very, very specialist. It requires a unique set of skills to, to work in that environment and to make things work in that environment as well. So, sim, you know, I, th I think there needs to be the sympathy on both sides. And that's something you'll never see in the job description either. And what's something that you're most excited about uh, with the future of space law and what kind of impacts it could have? I think recently we saw the signing of the Artemis Accords. Now, these were bilateral political agreements between states uh, under the auspices of the American Artemis program to return to the moon. This is a radically different way of doing space law to, to previously previously what we'd had was big international treaties signed within the auspices of the un that you know led to these i talked about the principles before what we're now seeing is a much more active a much more fluid state of affairs where state a and state b sign a sign an agreement between each other to behave in a certain way on a certain project and I think that's going to be interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see how that changes the nature of space law, whether it politicizes it more, because, of course, you know, you notice that Russia and China didn't sign the Artemis Accords, and it's unlikely that Russia would have signed the Artemis Accords anyway. So the, there's this politicization of, of, of space law and this politicization of norms. And I think that's going to be a really interesting development. I also think the, the increase in the orbital population is going to, it's going to make it so that we we have to regulate how satellites behave. So I think those two sort of areas are really interesting, really dynamic at the minute. And uh, would you still get into the industry knowing everything you know now? Oh, God, yeah, it's brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. I love my job. I love my job. I love working in, in space law. I love being an academic working in space law. I work with some amazing people. I work with some of the most intelligent creative and gifted people that you could ever imagine to meet and it is a privilege every day to be a part of that world brilliant um for someone maybe at the age of 16 but just doing their gcse's or so what would be some stuff you'd suggest for them if they wanted to pursue a career in space law 
my first thought would be, and, and this is probably advice again that you've had is, is as a 16 year old, don't panic. Play to develop your skills, develop everything you've got and find out what you're really, really good at. Um, because it, it's at that age where you don't really know and you want certainty and you're desperate for certainty and it, it's not there and it's not going to be there. So my advice is almost have tunnel vision and think, what am I really, really good at? And be honest because, you know, we, we all say, oh, well, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very good at that. When well, we know we are. So be, develop an honest diagnosis about yourself. What can you do and what can you do? You know, it's no use wanting to be a space lawyer if you're not very good at writing. But if you're good at maths, then forget being a space lawyer. Just go and join a space program, you know. So be, develop an honest and open diagnosis about yourself and your skills. Not a time for false modesty. Not a time for, for you know, for, for deluding yourself. So that's the main thing I would say. Make sure that you're available and aware of what you can do. Because then you can shape your, my, my career has been one where I've been trying to, to, to navigate to where I want to be. And it's, and it's understanding what I can do and what I can't do that's got me to where I am. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. I've really enjoyed chatting to you and it's been fascinating learning about the potential sort of careers in space law. Yes, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And good luck to anyone who's listening who's just about to embark on the journey. I would swap places with you in a heartbeat. I, I, think I loved what I, I loved what I do and I'd love to do it again. So, you know, thank you so much. Thank you again. Um, where can people find you on social media if, uh, if you've got any? Yeah, I am uh, on Twitter at Chris Newman. 1972 um they can also if they go on google they'll search and they'll find out my uh my, my uh, northumbria webpage you can have a look at me there as well and um yeah that's 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 uh, twitter is my is my social media of choice brilliant thank you so much it's been absolutely fascinating talking fantastic to you. thanks so much thanks chris cheers bye take care